Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms, conscious commentary on business and society. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. This podcast is designed to give the Academy's outlook on the economic, political, and ecological factors that affect our listeners. We have a very big show today. Our first show of 2014 will take a look at the year to come and the major issues at stake in the economy. On today's show, we'll discuss income inequality, the end of the unemployment benefit extension, the effort to raise the minimum wage, and and give an update on Obamacare. Additionally, we'll give the Academy's outlook for U.S. GDP growth in 2014. On the international front, we'll discuss the massive implications of the change in oil prices and how we see the changing geopolitical landscape now and in the very near future. Today, we also have a very special guest. George E. McCown is Chairman Emeritus of the World Business Academy. George is the Operating Director of American Infrastructure MLP Fund, a private investment firm focused on infrastructure and energy. In the lightning round, Ronaldo will share information about real estate investment trusts or REITs. Also, he'll discuss some opportunities in dividend stocks and outlook for the bond market. But first, Ronaldo, let's get started with a topic that is very much in the news and in the day-to-day experience of many of our listeners right now, income inequality. Hi, Matt. Thanks very much, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Um, Income inequality is probably, and and I'm glad that Obama's decided to pick that as his, I guess, major campaign of the second term. Uh, I suspect this will be the big one because it's going to go on for a while. And and what, what we need to focus upon in this conversation is how distorted income has become progressively in this country for a very, very long time. It was a great article in the Financial Times of London on this just two days ago. But if you consider that 95% of all the income gains since 2009 have gone to the top 1% of income earners, so 95% of the benefits to 1% of the people, what you're seeing is a distortive increase or acceleration of the accumulation of wealth at the top at the expense of a middle class that's decimated and the lower middle class, which has now become people who are below the poverty line. Um, you know, I, I saw a statistic, I don't know if it's true or not, but it, it sounds like it might be right, that the five Walton children together have more wealth than the 44% of the, the bottom 44% of the country. If that's wow. true, if that's true, and I think it's probably close to right, that's an indictment of the system. But let me give you one other thought. Forgetting the morality of it, forget the politics of it. It's bad economics. This country, the United States of America, only functions well when you have a vibrant middle class. That's true politically, but it's even more true economically. If you look at the retail sales, and I'm talking about the brick-and-mortar sales from the fourth quarter, you take a look at those retail sales in the fourth quarter, it was a very disappointing Christmas. And I believe it's a direct result of the fact that we've exhausted the middle class. We've basically dropped huge millions of people out of the middle class, and we've taken the, 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 what was considered a, a barely subsistence or survival living, and we've put it so far below the poverty line, spending has been compromised. So we don't have a capacity uh, problem where we can't surface uh, enough um, supply. We have a demand problem now. And, and when you have people who are extraordinarily wealthy at the top 1% and 2% of our society, their spending patterns don't typically change a lot, and certainly not enough to change the economy overall. Whereas if you have someone who's surviving on a minimum wage, which we're going to talk about later in this show, at $7.25 an hour, that person is going to spend every single penny they get, and they're going to spend it immediately, and that's going to produce significant stimulative economic growth. So what I'm raising here is a purely economic article, argument. I'm not, I'm not talking about the morality, and I think that there's, it's terribly immoral and foolish, both politically and sociologically, to permit the middle class to get poorer and poorer and the divide between the middle and the rich to grow and grow and grow, and for the accumulation of 95% of the wealth to occur at the top 1%. That's right. crazy on a whole lot of personal levels, morally, socially, and otherwise. But what I'm making here is a simpler argument. 
I'm saying it's really stupid economics. It's very, very bad economics. And because of the multiplier effect, which we've discussed many times on the show, it's actually shooting all of us in the foot. So as John Dunn said, don't ask for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Even if you're in the 1%, it tolls much worse if you're in the 99. Yeah. Well, uh, aside from the morality issue, like you're saying, the, the uh, of it just don't make sense. Uh, from your perspective, as a serial entrepreneur and a member of the Men's Warehouse Board of Directors for over 20 years, how do you view this issue of income inequality and also the issue of the minimum wage? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, men's warehouses, people probably know, have we currently, we're about to acquire, I think, Joseph A. Banks, but currently we have about approximately 20,000 employees worldwide. And the vast, the vast majority of those people in the United States are people who come to us really from high school with candidly very limited education. And we, we pay them what we believe is a living wage when they come in the front door. And then we quickly try to move them higher up our scale so that they can have one full-time job, and it can be the men's warehouse, and they can give us their full-time and attention. From a corporate point of view, that has been one of our secrets to success. One of the reasons we're so successful, I mean, how many retail companies in America can say they've never lost money one year that they've been public, and we've been public for 25 years? Very few. How many can say that they have more cash than they have debt? Very, very few. Now, the reason for that is because the way we treat people is we, our employees are extraordinarily loyal. And what they do is they choose to stay with us and grow with us, and we invest in them. One of the things we've done from the very beginning at our company is put way more money into education and, and, and improving the, the skills of our employees and their wages on the theory that they'd stay with us longer. And, in fact, our employee turnover is much, much lower than industry averages. So it's paying us back in the sense that we're saving money, not having to replace people who have a lot of institutional memory, but we're building loyalty, and that loyalty is being experienced by our customers. Now, if we didn't go off on that tactic, we, we, our goal – we don't want any single any, – not one permanent employee of the men's warehouse do we want to be below the poverty line. We want them all to be able to survive on their job, and that means by definition we've got to get them way above the 725 that's the current legal minimum wage. And as you know, Matt, the minimum wage on an inflation-adjusted basis has gone down since the 70s. It's lower right. now. So if you were at just where it was in the 70s, adjusted for inflation, we'd be at about 10 and a quarter, 10 and a half. And I also want to point out that California is now leading the way. We've now adjusted our minimum wage up to that level. Men's Warehouse is the dominant retail men's clothier in California. We're delighted with the higher minimum wage in California because we're even the playing field for everyone, and everybody gets, gets a win because now everybody's employees will do better. I just want to say one last thing about the minimum wage. I don't know when, as a nation, we started to accept the philosophy that it was okay to have somebody work a 40-hour-week job and I don't care what they're doing, and be below the poverty line. I don't, say, I don't think that's okay. If someone's got a 40-hour-a-week job, this society needs to be willing to pay that in person so that they could be at least above the poverty line. We never would have accepted that years ago. We shouldn't accept it today. It's morally wrong. It's sociologically wrong. It's politically instable, destabilizing. And most importantly, it's, from this conversation, it's economically foolish. The higher, raising the minimum wage will actually be one of the best things we could do to stimulate the economy and unleash an enormous wave of demand, which would generate a minimum, a minimum of one percentage point of GDP growth, and I'd say possibly higher. While we're on the issue of workers and wages, uh, a huge issue in the news right now is the end of the extension of unemployment benefits at the federal level. Uh, legislation to renew this extended unemployment insurance passed under the Bush administration, is being blocked in Congress right now. Uh, as of December 28th, 1.3 million people were cut off of unemployment benefits, and there's about 4 million Americans who have been out of work for 27 weeks or longer currently. Um, it, it's very interesting when you talk about this extension because it's been almost automatic since the recession hit. And right now it looks like the Republicans in Congress are refusing to go along with efforts to to restore these benefits to people who aren't able to work. One of the reasons it's so unbelievable in some ways is that currently, you know, we have good statistics on this. It takes an average job hunter 35 weeks to find a new position, but in many states, 
that don't have supplemental unemployment insurance, uh, they only they get cut off after 26 weeks. So that's nine weeks without insurance. Um, how do you think this, if, if the Congress fails to increase the benefits and the length of time uh, people can receive those benefits, how do you think this is going to affect business and GDP in the next year? Yeah, I, first of all, I want, to, I want to observe something for the, for, the, for the listeners that haven't noticed. We've been doing in the show the last few months, uh, Matt, and I know you've got an announcement coming later in the show about how we're going to change the formats for more in the future. But uh, one of the things we're doing in this show these days, folks, is um, Matt Renner, is an ex- apart from being the executive director of the Academy, is an articulate and thoughtful spokesperson of the issues that most uh, challenge or interest involve his generation. And one of the things we're doing with the show these days is we've decided that I'm going to try and listen to what Matt's got on, in his mind and what, what, what are the questions that his generation's asking? Because candidly, my generation is the baby boomers. Uh, we're the 65 or plusers. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that we will get more people in my age category who tune into the show and sharing what they believe is their viewpoint to these really important questions that jab at people like Matt Renner, who in his young 30s has got the entire his, his working career in front of him, not behind him. I just wanted to throw that out because I, I want Thank people you. to know why we're going to this kind of trouble to make sure that we understand what's on your mind, Matt, because I think you are sort of the modern-day everyman. Having said that, specifically, I want to, t- I want to narrow what you said about the Republicans. Uh, it isn't um, – remember, the Republicans in the Senate – Five of them joined with the Democrats to pass the extension of unemployment benefits just a couple days ago. So when we say the the Republicans in Congress, I want to narrow that to the Republicans in the House. And I want to further narrow it to say that my suspicion is that the House Republicans are going to show increasing wisdom in the future as they began to do with the deal that Paul Ryan worked out on the budget. What I mean by that is I think the Tea Party has learned its lesson. I think the Republican Party has finally figured out that they can't turn the Republican Party over to the Tea Party right-wing fringe, because to do so will mean the end of the Republican Party. And I'm seeing a really an interesting internal struggle in the party playing out in lots of directions, whether it's Lynn Cheney dropping out of the race against Enzi, or whether it's um, the, the compromise that was put to the floor, which the Democrats and Republicans together pushed through in the House. Uh, all of these issues, and what the Senate just did with the Republicans to get the extension of unemployment benefits, all of these issues bespeak an interesting political dynamic that says to me that there are a lot of people who are consider themselves Republicans who are trying to take their party back. Uh, now that they would elect Karl Rove to do so when he's the architect of the Tea Party in the first place, I find somewhat humorous, but I'm glad they're putting some heavy, heavy emphasis on it. And that gives the possibility of governing once again in the Congress. Now, that said, I can't predict whether Boehner and his team, uh, Eric Cantor and those people, will stand up to the Tea Party wing again. But there is no question that extending the unemployment benefits – Again, not only is it the humane thing to do, how would you feel if you were going to lose your house or not be able to feed your children or yourself, to literally starve, because you had no source of income and you've been long-term unemployed? And in a recession that's been extraordinarily ugly, and which, by the way, I believe the Republicans bear more blame for continuing than the Democrats, because they constantly have avoided spending money on stimulus. Now, my, my issue here, therefore is, again, about the economic argument that I've heard the Republicans making. Here's what Mitch McConnell said yesterday, and I've heard it from other Republicans uh, in the last couple of days. Well, we are happy to extend the unemployment benefits, but you've got to show us how it's going to pay for itself. Well, any first-year economic student knows how it's going to pay for itself. When you extend unemployment benefits, 100% of the money you put into the pockets of those starving workers who are looking for work. Remember, you only get unemployment benefits if you show up looking for a job. You don't get them if you drop out of the workforce. Now, those people who are showing up, trying to get a job, knocking on the doors, going into the unemployment agencies, those people spend every single penny the instant they get it. It goes straight into the economy. There's a multiplier effect of 5.5 probably in this case or more, which means that every penny we give them generates 5.5 pennies of overall economic activity. Those economic activities generate taxes generate more jobs, which thereby lowers the, 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 the 
uh, unemployment rate. So the whole thing is a, what's called a virtuous cycle in economics, and it actually pays for itself. In fact, it creates a dividend. It, it creates more wealth than it costs you. So the only reason to stop unemployment benefits from being extended for the long-term unemployment, the only reason I can ascertain is if you are trying to continue to hobble the economy intentionally so that you're hoping as a Republican that Obama's party will be defeated in the 2014, uh, 2014 elections. That's the only conceivable reason to do it, and I can think of no other. Now, that's a pretty nasty thing to say about people, but any Republican who votes against extending long-term benefits, I believe is either non-compass mentis, which is a legal term meaning they're out of their mind, or they are craven to the point that they want the economy to be hurt, and are willing to hurt people in the process. I will end on this note. We now know from the, the, the release of emails, the secret emails that came out yesterday in New Jersey, that the highest levels, it may or may not stop with Governor Christie. I mean, he, he, he's trying to insulate himself right now by firing everybody around him. But even if it doesn't go to Christie, it went to the highest levels of New Jersey state government, where they literally said, it's okay those kids are stuck on buses. It's okay if people can't get their ambulances, because they would have voted for um, Bruno anyway, and she's a Democrat. Now, that kind of stuff has got to stop. When, you're, when you hurt the society you're elected to preserve and protect, simply because you're trying to get political advantage, they shouldn't just take you out of office. They ought to put you in jail. But from now on, I'll say to, the, to, to anybody, whether a Democrat or a Republican, please, let's govern. Let's, let, let's quit dragging our feet. Let's quit shooting our feet. And let's get on with rebuilding the country. We're going to have a unique opportunity to do so this year. Let's not blow it. Well, I think that's a pretty powerful message, and I hope that your optimism is warranted in the case of the congressional Republicans, in part because, just to be clear, the, the Senate hasn't passed a bill yet. They've, they've cleared a procedural hurdle in order to, to vote on it at some point. Uh, with, that, with that said, though, I, you know, I think you're right. There's a, there's a real chance that the tide has turned. And one of the big changes that we want to segue to here is that Obamacare is now behind them and it is law and they are no longer going to continue to try to repeal it. Uh, and it's a policy change that could tangentially address the issue of wealth disparity in some ways. Um, I want to see what you think about the future of Obamacare. And uh, I think you have a little, uh, a little bit of a victory dance to do. I do. Well, listen, about the, first of all, what you just said about the Senate, you're absolutely correct. One of the reasons why I take that procedural action to be victory in the Senate is because I think most um, thoughtful observers agree that was the, the the test vote to see whether five and Republicans would cross the line. Right. And once that became clear, that opened up a conversation, which I understand is happening today, between Senate conferees and House conferees on what it is that we can do in the um, it, it, with the final legislation, for, and, and as you know, there's a question of whether it should be three months or longer, and there's all kinds of other gibberish going in there. But I believe, I'm hopeful, that that Senate vote was in fact uh, the litmus test which we've been waiting for, and will and indicates that Senate passage is imminent, and that they're going to try and pass it in a way that they can bring, uh, they can get Boehner to agree to let it come to the floor of the House. I have no doubt, Matt, that if it comes to the floor of the House, if Boehner doesn't block it, it'll right. pass. I have no question Absolutely, whatsoever yeah. in my mind. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so now let's go about the Obamacare and the, and the victory dance, so-called. Well, first of all, here's what the victory is. The victory is twofold. I'm going to give you the macro and I'm going to give you the micro. On the macro level, 6.4 million people today have insurance that didn't before Affordable Care Act or so-called Obamacare. That is enormous. 6.4 million People, people um, saw the, 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 the debacle of the rollout of that website, and they were crying, oh, poor me, poor me. It's sort of like somebody crying in the 30s that they thought Social Security was imminently going to fail because it got off to a rough start the first couple of months. And by the way, the same thing happened in Massachusetts when Governor Romney put the equivalent of the Affordable Care Act in his state. Now, that 6.4 million, just to get so people can understand, how, that total is computed as follows. You take the state exchanges. You take the federal exchange, you add them all together. Then you take the new CHIP, um, um, uh, the CHIP Act, which is the uh, food stamp and uh, child, uh, the, me, the child health coverages, and then the, the Medicare expansion that was built into that. And when you put those all together, you get 6.4 million new insureds. And that number, I'm convinced, is going to go. I would be shocked if we don't see 
uh, 20 million people directly benefiting from uh, Obamacare within the next five years or less. In addition, you've seen now for the second year the beginning of the slowdown of the acceleration of medical care costs, and I think that will continue. In other words, bringing more government regulation to this industry, which consumes 16% of the, the nation's GDP, is only going to help rein in additional increases in the cost of the healthcare system, and eventually it's going to get that healthcare system to be affordable again. Uh, whether or not it leads to single-payer system or not is an interesting conversation many of us will be having, I'm sure, in the months and years ahead. Yeah. This, that's the macro picture. Let me give you the micro. Uh, I was picked up at the airport last night, as you knew, I flew out of town, and I was picked up by a gentleman who's 65, just turned 65, who's, who's no, uh, he's unemployed currently, and he's decided to give up and just stay retired. It's, it's a very meager existence for him. Uh, his wife has serious medical issues and has had for years, and uh, his, he couldn't get insurance. The reason he couldn't get insurance because of a pre-existing condition. And his wife clearly had pre-existing conditions, no question about it. Mm-hmm. And I was saying to him, I was saying, well, Ray, are you, are you able to save some money now finally? He says, well, it hasn't kicked in yet. He said, but, you know, just on her medications and non-insurable, because she's not 65, uh, visits, it's costing him 650 to $700. Says, where are you getting the money, Ray? He said, it's bleeding my savings pretty fast. I'm not able to save money, and, I, and I'm living very simply, and I know for a fact he's living very simply. I mean, this man's utility bills for everything at his place where he lives is literally uh, 250 bucks a month. So, yeah. so this is a guy who's really struggling and who's at the end of his productive life cycle in terms of work career, and he's not likely to get hired anyway because of his age. And without the Affordable Care Act, he would be literally staring, I think, at certainly homelessness, and probably worse, even though he is 65, it's because his wife is not. So that's my micro example. It just happened to me last night. I didn't know that was the case. I felt very bad about it, and I gave him some advice about how to get going and get himself on the on on the, on the uh, register. Yeah, yeah. No, but those are real stories. Those are not anecdotal. Those yeah. the 47 million people in America still have that story. Less than 6 million who are 6.4 million who now have Obamacare. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, the kinks will be worked out and the, pro- the program will really hit its stride in the years to come and help solve the problem and, and like you said, move towards a po- the potential for a single-payer system. Uh, yeah. I want to I zoom out a little bit and talk about the international implications of the oil market and where you see that headed this year and in the near future. Yeah, let's touch on that a little bit. And by the way, you know, I've forgotten that. I, I was going to mention, I know I told you ahead of time, I was going to mention about the – I find that McDonald's position – McDonald's restaurant's position on the minimum wage, oh, yeah. to go back to that for a second. Yeah. Here's the CEO making $13.8 million, which is approximately 19,000 times what his entry-level workers make because he pays them minimum wage, which, by the way, means that you and I are subsidizing every McDonald's worker because we have to pay that? for their health care. Huh? Can you repeat that number, the, the ratio? It's about 19,000 times greater than the $7.25 an hour minimum wage worker that's flipping burgers. Nineteen thousand. It's insane. It's 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 obscene. It's egregious. But the reason I wanted to bring this story up, but I I don't want to let it go because in California we have an extremely successful hamburger chain. So I want to compare hamburger chain to hamburger chain. Our hamburger chain out in California is called In and Out Burger. Anybody who's ever been here, has ever had one, knows it's like the state. It's like the the, 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 if there were a state meal, it would be the In and Out Burger. Anyway. They start their employees at ten twenty-five an hour and have for years. They provide benefits, insurance. They provide paid vacation. And they do all of this and make an enormous amount of profit. But their CEO doesn't make $13.8 million. Now, i got to tell you, if the CEO of McDonald's was willing to take and put 10 of that 13.8, he can keep 3.8 if he wants. He wanted to put $10 million back into the pockets of his workers any way he wants to do it every year, I'd have new respect for him. And by the way, I'd, have, I'd, have a, I'd be putting out a buy recommendation on McDonald's stock. If they were to raise the minimum wage of McDonald's, which they should, from seven twenty-five to a minimum of ten ten and a quarter, and the same thing at Burger King, and the same thing at Jack in the Box, and the same, all those guys that are fighting it, all those young brand companies, KFC, the rest of them, they ought to be pushing for this because the workers in their restaurants are precisely the people that are likely to spend more in each other's restaurants if they had a decent minimum wage. 
So the, the, the so-called convenience restaurant, which is uh, everybody knows shorthand for fast food that's cheap, if those people would let up and say, look, you know what, it's, you can't live on less than 10 25 uh, you can't. It's impossible an hour. I defy anyone listening to this call to tell me how they could survive even by themselves on 1025 an hour, let alone if they're married or have kids. So uh, what I wanted to point out is this greed at the top, which is holding the bottom back, is actually self-destructive greed, as usually greed is. And I yeah. want to throw that example up. So thanks for letting me uh, indulge yeah. me in that little segue. Um, yeah, well, I, I appreciate it. I want to get to oil, though, because I think it's a really important thing. Yeah, let's do the oil thing, and, we gotta, and I don't want to keep George waiting any longer, too. So, yeah. so basically, um, I touched on this the last a couple of shows, last show for sure, I know. I want everybody to be noticing the price of Brent North Sea crude. Last time I looked, it was about $107 a barrel. And I want you to compare that to West, West Texas Intermediate, which the last time I looked was about $93 a barrel. Now, it's a 16% differential. Historically, for as long as those two numbers have existed, I, I can't recall a time in my adult life when they've been more than 5 or 6% different. And the reason is, if it's more than 5 or 6% different, you'll start shipping oil from one part of the world to the other. Now, for a lot of reasons not worth going into, the, the price of oil has remained higher in Brent than it should. And I do believe that is an unsustainably high price. I don't see Brent crude going up. I see West Texas staying the same or even coming further down. In fact, there was just a request of the U.S. government, which I hope we turned down by a senator from Alaska, to permit exporting of American crude on the theory that we'll otherwise have a glut. True, we probably will have a little bit of an excess. But it's okay. We can restock the petroleum reserves that we've depleted in prior periods of economic hardship. And... We can, we can let the price of crude in the United States start to drop as it should with marketplace forces. The shared oligopoly, which is the oil companies, has kept that price higher in the U.S., even at $93 a barrel, than the marketplace would allow if the marketplace were free to operate. And when you unleash 3 or 4 or $5 drop in the price of oil, you unleash enormous economic productivity in the U.S. economy. Now, well, I want to focus, though, on the North Sea for a second. There are thoughtful analysts who believe that, that Russia cannot maintain itself as a nation, cannot pay its debts. This is before the $50 billion Sochi fiasco. Cannot maintain its debts at below $107 a barrel. I've always taken a more conservative approach. I say, no, they can squeeze by on $100 a barrel, 100 to 102 I think the Saudis can squeeze by on 100 to $102 a barrel. Neither one of them can make it below 100. So when the price of Brent crude puts downward pressure like it is, you've got this modern-day czar named Putin in Russia who's looking over his shoulder going, how am I going to keep paying the benefits that keep me in office and keep people quiet if I can't keep the price of oil up? And by the way, the, the, I think there's been a great turn of events in Europe where the Europeans have begun to get partial freedom now from the control the US, that Russia used to have over the gas supplies, natural gas supplies in Europe. So the Brent Sea oil that is dropping now dramatically has been, and, and is out of whack from where it should be relative to West Texas Intermediate, that, watch for that spread to grow, and eventually there will be a crack in the price in Brent crude. And when that crack happens and it drops from a dollar hundred and seven a barrel down to one hundred and five to one hundred four hundred three hundred two, there is going to be the potential for destabilization in Saudi Arabia and in Russia. And there are a whole lot of forces in this world, including unfortunately the u s government that doesn't want to see that happen. I, for one, am all for it. We'll let it happen so that's where we are today and by the way, if you want to know how to protect the Arctic from drilling. Let the price of North Sea oil start falling, and it's uneconomic to drill in the Arctic. So I, I'll yeah. just wrap up with that. Watch that Great. ratio. It'll tell you a lot about the future geopolitics of the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really important one that very few people know about, but now that we've been studying it, it's, I, I see exactly why you're so focused on it, and although it's really excellent. Um, we do have an important update about the future of this show. Uh, the World Business Academy continues to tackle some major initiatives including our efforts to remake the global fuel system starting in California. So right now we're not going to be able to move this show to a weekly format as we had announced last month. Uh, but there are plans still in the works to do this in 2014, and we'll keep you updated. 
In the meantime, please do remember to share the link to the show with your networks and post it to Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'd love to hear from you and take your questions at info at worldbusiness.org. So email us at info at worldbusiness.org for more information or to give us your feedback. Uh, now, Ronaldo, I want to bring on George. And remember, if it's a good question, we'll read it on the air. We, you know, so please, give us your – what's interesting to you folks? Uh, Matt's not the only interesting 30-pluser that I'm trying to find a way to speak to. Uh, there's hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of you out there I'd like to talk to. Absolutely. So, Ronaldo, I want to bring on George McCown. George is Chairman Emeritus of the World Business Academy and Operating Director of American Infrastructure MLP Funds, a private investment firm focused on infrastructure and energy. Uh, for our audience, Ronaldo and George go way back and have been discussing economics almost since the subject was invented, so we're in for a real <laughs> treat. George, are you there? Did we lose George? No, I'm here. Excellent. Hey, George, how are you? I'm just fine. I'm so glad we were finally able to get a date that would work for you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so George, as uh, Matt just said, is the was chairman for 16 years, actually, of the World Business Academy, and uh, actually is one of our faithful listeners on the show. And one of the reasons we wanted George on the line is George has been for many years um, what's called a venture banker and uh, actually kind of invented the category uh, with his own personal career. Without going into it with too much detail, uh, George, who's been a, a trustee of Stanford University, uh, the Hoover Institute, uh, has been an, ex- an acute observer of economic phenomenon for many decades that I'm aware of. Uh, I thought this was a good show to have you on, too, George, because we're going to be talking about the rest of the year. I'm looking pretty bullish about the rest of the year. What do you say? Yeah, I am, too, Ronaldo. Uh, I'm uh, trying to get my head around what's going on in the rest of the world, too, because we're so interconnected. Uh, and if I might... Uh, just say, number one, we've got companies that are domestic, although the, the cash is sitting offshore. Our domestic companies have never been so flush. Right. So there's enormous, enormous capacity to do stuff if the confidence comes to be able to, to be, and the willingness to do it. And just as an aside, I think that the, the ability to park all that money offshore is really one of the horrible flaws in our system. That's just wrong given yeah. the comments that you were making about uh, the number of people that are living in poverty and all the other things that we need to, to fix here. Uh, and, and I'd also like to just add on that one of my pet peeves in business has been increasingly the disparity between the average worker and the CEO. When I first entered corporate America, which was 1963 with Boise Cascade Corporation, uh, I made, I don't know, 15000 a, a month or a year, I'm sorry, 15000 a year. And I, thought, I think my boss maybe made uh, seventy-five to 100000 a year as a CEO of a, of a public company. He had bonuses. He had, you know, a lot of other things too. But the gap between the average worker and the CEO was nothing like it is now. And my personal theory is that what's driven this up to a very large extent and knowing how boardrooms operate on competitive salaries and doing surveys amongst competitors and all this kind of stuff to justify ever-increasing compensation for the people that run these companies, is I think that it started, frankly, with the entertainment industry and with uh, sports. And the amount of money that the people that are entertainers and sports players get paid and the CEOs looking around and saying, you know, I may not be able to pitch a baseball as fast as that guy, but I'm running a company with 100,000 people in it. How come he's making $100 million a year and I'm making whatever? So I think part of the inflation that we're seeing is not just driven by business. It's driven by our society and the, thing, the things that we place value on and the things that we're willing to pay for. So with that aside, uh, <clears throat> I would say I'm cautiously optimistic about the uh, domestic economy. I think... To be out of work in this economy, if you're not a knowledge worker, if you're not technologically uh, uh, up on things, is really a problem. And I'll be darned if I know, I'm not a social engineer and I, I don't know how to fix it exactly, but the story you told us uh, about the guy who picked you up last night, Ronaldo, I mean, I just see that everywhere. And it's just, it's awful. 
Uh, and it isn't that somebody's making it that way so much as that we haven't put our arms around the totality of this problem or the, the, the you know dimensions of it and come up with some good solutions. And it's interesting that you made the comment about if the CEO of McDonald's would take $10 million of his money and transfer it back to the workers. I mean, I think it's going to be partly, as so many things are, going to have to be solved in the business world. Not everything, in fact, most things, in my opinion, can't be solved by government, particularly at the federal level. So this is a big, big deal. And the, the income inequality thing, it's not just on Obama's agenda. It ought to be on everybody's agenda. Yeah, you know, George, just to, just to touch on this, because you're sophisticated, and most people don't know how it works on Wall Street, but to watch the way Wall Street's greed unraveled it and the planet is really quite shocking. And you know I've, for years, had a fairly low opinion of Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan. <laughs> and I've I'm, I'm just been delighted to see how many things he's had to plead guilty to in the last say, 18 months, including the, 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 the new $2 billion settlement to Madoff victims because they knew or should have known long before Madoff went boom that he, those trading patterns were highly irregular and probably improper. And they didn't because they were making money off the man. And, and so to me, this, 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 this greed era, is, you know, it's sort of like the Gordon Gecko greed is good era, yeah. uh, is, is, is got to come to an end. And I think business leaders like you and me and others, have got to say, how, how are we going to rein this in? Because it's not good for anybody, not even for us. No, you're absolutely right. And it, it is a, a – you sat in boardrooms too, Ronaldo, and you know how it goes yeah. with, uh, with the compensation committee of a public company, as an example. Yeah. And <clears throat> you do these surveys, and these guys go out and they survey the comp competitors, and the competitors have all ratcheted up because they've been doing the same surveys of us, and it's just this self-fulfilling prophecy, and it's nuts. And well, that it's plus you know, that that plus you know <laughs> the survey firms that I'm thinking of make their principal livelihood doing that. In other words, yeah. if they bounce from boardroom to boardroom, and the reason they get hired candidly in most cases by the CEO pressure, they get hired because that we all know what the answer is going to be when you when you put the survey request out. So I think that there's an issue here, and I don't know the answer, George. This is not like a loaded question. I really don't know the answer. I don't either. But I know, I know that we're going to have to do something. Um, you know, we've done some things at our company, at Men's Warehouse. We've, we've done a few things to try and, you know, rein it in. Uh, we, we try to tie compensation more uh, to what's really happening for the share owners. We've tried sure. clawbacks, you know, but, the, but nothing comprehensive. And, and I candidly have to admit, and I think we've got a great board in the Men's Warehouse. I'm very proud to be on it. Um, we have not addressed this issue adequately, and I suspect it's because nobody is. Nobody is. Nobody yeah. that I know of. And, and I hear I have a lot of friends that are on boards of public companies, and it, the, the thing you don't want to have as an assignment is to be chairman of the compensation committee. It's totally thankless. You get beaten up by the CEO. You get beaten up by the other members of the management. And, I mean, people, it's just a whole different world. Anyway, I don't want to take up all our time on it, but it's a major issue. Yeah, yeah, and 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 sort of the parents' firm and people like them, and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, they tower parents. I mean, they 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 made a they made a, a, an industry out of something that was actually never existed as an industry 30 years ago, and the result is these astronomically skyrocketing uh, CEO compensation uh, levels. And and by the way, as you know, it's gone below CEO now. Now it's like everybody else is feeding at the trough. Anyway, um, the, the next thing I wanted to, to go at, though, George, I, here's my – I gave this out in December, as usually I do. I said that I see this year uh, – I believe we're going to go certainly above three, probably as high as 3.5% GDP, which might not sound like a lot, but is over a 30% improvement from 2013, which I think is a lot. I've called for a minimum of one-point reduction of the unemployment rate. I think that's conservative. I think we'll get one-and-a-half points. Uh, anyways, what I'm saying is a um, the brake has been released to a car that was already going slightly downhill. And we're rolling. I agree with that. I would use roughly the same numbers. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? Uh, I'm watching now. Did you see the purchasers, uh, purchasing managers index is up, which I would expect, meaning people are starting to buy into the belief they better put more inventory into the cycle from business to business. But one that really surprised me was the manufacturer's output started to rise two months ago. 
yeah. in the U.S. And that's not that's not uh, that's not printing. That's not that's not like uh, you know making plastic guns from a from a from a Xerox machine. That's real manufacturing going yeah. on. Uh, of, what do you think about that? I, I I'm not exactly surprised because there's so much pent up demand for so many things, particularly cars. Right. And the car industry is coming back in blazing colors. And I might just say as an aside, and I think the auto bailout was absolutely a good thing to do myself. Wasn't it? It was hugely. I mean, look, I mean, on every level, it's been a, 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 a yeah. tremendous success. And what I also think is insertion of three non-Detroit people to run the three largest Detroit companies has had a miraculous effect. Yeah, I mean, the amount of inbreeding Detroit engaged in, and you know what they say about inbreeding, if you want, if you want to have idiot children, you know, that's how you achieve it, right? Inbreeding. Right. And the same thing was true of executive children. Well, uh, Sergio uh, has now completed, with his January 1st or 2nd offer, he's now completed the takeover of, of this part of the Chrysler he didn't own, the 48% he didn't own, 44%. Right. Um, and, and he's a an Italian cowboy who came out of the sunset and realized that the sa way to save Fiat was to buy Chrysler, and we didn't see that under our own nose. We, we couldn't figure that one out until after it happened. Obviously, General Motors has been a standout in terms of putting someone in place who had nothing to do with the automobile company or industry and then picked the female successor, Barra, who I think is going to be really good for that company. Yep. And then last but not least, the most brilliant pick of all is, I think, William, uh, Bill Ford picking William Mullally. I think that uh, that, to me, was the, the genius stroke of humility on Ford's part, because he does have his name on the door. It's his grandfather. And, but and he was decision to stay there as opposed to go to Microsoft. And yeah, I, I, was, I was pleased. Microsoft. What's that? I don't know who the hell they're going to get to. I said to Karen this morning, my wife, I think they're going to have to get Bill Gates back in there. I don't think anybody else is going to take the job who could possibly do it. Bill, Bill won't do it, but they do need an iconoclast. They need somebody who's going to break the mold. That's their problem. And Ballmer, as you know, his job description from the day he got there was back Bill. <clears throat> he yeah. wasn't the lead pony, and he never was supposed to be. And when they tried to make him one, he just didn't know where to lead. So I, I don't know what's going to happen with Microsoft, although I think they have, a, they have potentially a great future still if they would be, begin to reorient the company. I, I was very impressed, uh, and I'm sure you are watching what's going on with Yahoo, George. Yep. Uh, Melissa Myers is doing a brilliant job, and you saw she came down and she doubled up on her bet at the Consumer Electronics Show yesterday, the uh, day before, and right. saying it's about the content and it's about mobile. Yep. And to my young Digerati friends like Matt Renner, that's like that's like saying the obvious. That's like you and me saying that is like him saying, "Well, the sun rises in the east." <laughs> <laughs> no, I, that's accurate. I I, uh, I became a significant investor in Yahoo when they brought her in. I thought she was going to do great things. Didn't know what. Uh, well, you've done well with that. Let me uh, let me go it's on. Double the stock has doubled since you bought it. Then George, congratulations. Yeah, well, it's one of the few good things I've done. <laughs> I don't know about that, but it's certainly a good one. <laughs> I want to talk for a moment, uh, if I may, about India, because sure. as you know, we helped found a uh, uh, private equity firm uh, in India, and uh, it's done extraordinarily well until the last fund, and it's hit a rough patch over the last couple of years. I still am on the board. The board meetings are in the convenient location of Mauritius in the South Indian Ocean, which is 11 hours overnight to Paris and then another 11 hours overnight to Mauritius, if for anybody interested in going there. <laughs> it's their tax haven for India. I mean, they have, to, they have to show up, they have to have their India meetings there, and so on and so forth. But all of a sudden, people have been really beating India leadership up about the issue of corruption. And yep. I have a very good friend who's a lead lead writer for the Times of India, Gersharan Das, who yep. was formerly the uh, president of C, uh, Procter & Gamble, India. Great guy. And he's backing this guy, Modi. Modi is the uh, prime minister, if you will, of Gujarat, which is probably the most sort of forward-looking province of, uh, of India. It happens to be where Gandhi's from and also where... Um, Muhammad Ali Jinnah was from, interestingly enough. Uh, anyway, I think India is on the verge of a major change in leadership and a major recycling of their growth 
into a more growth-oriented thing and a real clampdown on corruption. So I'm all of a sudden very much more bullish on India. I don't. I'm not a China uh, observer of any of any great note, but my hunch is their slower growth is probably a good thing for them, and I don't think China is going to come back uh, roaring back at all. But I think it's still selectively can be a good place to invest. Uh, interestingly enough, as you know, uh, to your great uh, dismay, Ronaldo, we still have a portfolio company in the coal business. It's a little company back in Ohio that supplies power plants with local open pit uh, mines that are uh, only to scrub plants and all the stuff. Doesn't doesn't address the issue of CO2 at all, but it does clearly address all all the rest of it. So we watch the coal markets very interesting. I couldn't believe it when I picked up the journal this morning, and they were talking about the resurgence of coal out of the Illinois Basin here in America, and it's export coal. And uh, the resurgence of coal in uh, coming out of Australia and other places that don't have uh, LNG, that don't have you know natural gas, so. Well, you can add to that, George, um, the, believe it or not, the resurgence of lignite, which is our so-called brown coal, in Germany. Yeah, in, in Germany. But the other thing that is somewhat uh, helpful is the completion of an experimental plant by southern companies on the gasification of coal and the removal of CO2 prior to the burning process. Now, if that could be done on a scale that is economic, that is a very big change in you know the use of coal and its viability as a fuel, and so I'm the only saying that because the rest of whatever happens here and coal use has dropped from you know almost 50 percent of electrical generation 10 years ago to under under 40, it's now around 38, 37 now, and and dwindling. Uh, the the, it, it, you know, not only due to the pollution effects of coal, but also this incredible surge of uh, natural gas that we're finding in shale. Well, you know, let's, you've, you've, you've ranged across a whole bunch of in, uh, ideas there. So let me come start with where you started, which was India. Yep. And yep. Uh, yeah, Gujarat, of course. One of the things that India says incredibly is that their future growth is in two things you love, Ronaldo, coal and nuclear. Yeah, you know, oh. everybody's allowed to be wrong as often as they want. And by the way, the the the, the Financial Times of London piece on the lignite uh, coal issue two two days ago uh, projected blithely and, and cited an American source that American coal has three decades to run, which I can assure you is false for a variety of reasons. And 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 the the quality of thinking that put out such a statement is basically the source of the information that I think is misleading. Um, so since we're talking about coal, let me start there, and I'll back up into India and China. Um, George, the, 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 the process that you mentioned, the glassification of coal, is as old as World War II, as you know. It's called the Fischer-Tropes process. And, and the Fischer-Tropes process has been around in one form or another for Every, well, since 1941, I guess, right. uh, 39, and and the the economics of it are extremely difficult to uh, to make work, which is why fracking and natural gas has sort of uh, pushed coal aside. Uh, you you quoted a statistic that we used to have, for example, 54, 55 percent of all the electricity in America was created through coal burning, and now it is down to 37, 38 percent and dropping, and will continue to drop. Right. What took its place was natural gas, not because anybody's an environmentalist, but because natural gas is that much cheaper. And although there's been a slight bump uh, in the last uh, two weeks in natural gas pricing, which is merely seasonal and related to the cold spell back east, that bump will be obliterated soon. And it, it seems to me that the inexorable push of natural gas to market will continue to deplete uh, the value of coal. There's one thing you, because you, you, you're, you're not watching China, you should look at carefully. Everybody's projecting the sale of coal. Uh, I'll take Germany separately. The sale of coal from the U.S. and Australia to China. That's the market, right? Right, George? That's the market, export. Right. right. And, and that market, people don't realize this new Politburo has put into place an extremely strong environmental policy. Now, China is run by engineers, not politicians the way we have. When they say we now know that it's, it's an intolerable level of air pollution, 
Right. Because as you know, George, they can't even see in some of those cities. Literally, it's like it's like London in in in, in the 1880s, right? Yeah, the, the London fog. Well, for the good. same reason the Brits got rid of it, coal dust in the air. The right. Chinese are running fast to do it, and I'll tell you why they got to do it, and that's because they built a giant middle class, and that giant middle class right now is demanding a tolerable living condition along with the first car they ever owned. And the, the Chinese, and, and my projection, by the way, for the Chinese economy this year, George, is it will do somewhere north of 6.5% true GDP growth. Yeah. And I think it could go over 7 which means it will continue to be a, a horse pulling the global economy forward. With the U.S. at 3 to 3.5% and China at 7 or more, uh, we're talking about Europe coming out of recession. As you know, Spain has already started to come out of recession. Ireland already crossed over and paid off its debts, which I thought was astounding. Portugal's coming up. Italy's already done what Italy always does, which is it avoids the legal structures and it creates wealth, I think, behind closed doors. But Italy's coming up. The only basket case left in Europe, literally, is France in old Europe or middle Europe. Now, and by the way, it's the only country that depends on nuclear. Just interesting coincidence. 87% of their energy is is nuclear in France. It's the only country that's a basket case in Europe. And by the way, I predict will continue to go down for the same reasons that that policy is to keep nuclear in place in France at a cost to the French taxpayer of many, many tens of billions of dollars. That, dep- that, that depressive effect on their economy is one the French cannot afford any longer or sustain. But let's take coal sales to China. What's happening, George, if you look at the most innovative technologies that the U.S. has given up on in the renewables area, the, all, the buyer who keeps showing up at the doorstep is China. Right. China has three enormous advantages. One, they think the American money they own could become less valuable every day through inflation, so they want to buy something with it, right? Yeah. Number two, they saw what they did. They didn't invent windmills. They just drove, between them and the Indians, they drove everybody else out of the business. So they dominate the windmill market now. Right. They, they didn't invent a single thing in solar cells. They dominate solar cells globally. Right. And if, and if we let them, they drive the price even lower. But it's because of the Chinese that we have a photovoltaic on your roof revolution going on in the United States. So what's going to happen in China, faster than the coal people are calculating, is an extraordinarily rapid switch. The current administration will not be in office. I mean, before they leave, they will have cured this vast air pollution problem in China, and the only way they can cure it is to radically reduce coal, and that's what they're about to do. There's a 1.7 megawatt hydrogen fuel cell plant that's already been turned on in Seoul, South Korea. The number one customer that Seoul's been aiming at is not the Koreans. They already got the Koreans sold. And by the way, the first hydrogen vehicle to hit the American streets in mass quantities this May is Hyundai. Hyundai which is South Korean. Now, what the Koreans are doing is they're betting on the fact that they're going to be the servicers to the Chinese economy, and they believe that that service is going to be fuel cells, fuel cells powered by, powered by hydrogen. I believe that's where the future is. And if I could give you one piece of friendly advice, George, get out of that coal business while you still can hey, listen, and I'm, redeploy it. <laughs> I'm going as fast as I can. I, 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 don't, I didn't want to divert onto that because I'm not trying to promote coal. I'm just commenting on it. Uh, yeah, and I, I just think that there's a lot of there's a lot of happy talk about clean coal and everything else. Well, now, there's yeah. yeah, there's one thing I want to talk about that you did mention that's really critical, and that is if you could do fisher tropes and you could extract the CO2, what would you end up with it? And there's this major report, George, that came out just um, let's say three weeks ago from the Green Chemistry Association. They've been able to synthesize plastic from ambient CO2 sucked out of the atmosphere. That is the best news I've heard on climate change in a long time. Interesting. Because we know that sequestering CO2 in gaseous form is deadly. can't be done safely. And so people have been saying, what are you going to do with all the CO2 if you could suck it back out of the air? Forget about putting more in. I was going to put it into algae ponds and harvest the algae and make biofuel. Hey, listen, I want to make – I want somebody to comment on the Middle East. Karen and I went to Turkey and Israel in May – came away saying, what a place, my God, you can't even begin to understand what's going on over there. Israel uh, produces more startup companies than any other co- company country in the world, and everything around it is just a disaster. Uh, what do you think's going on, and how, what's the impact going to be on the risk? 
it, okay. you know, it's uh, the way the other conclusion was, and they've been at it for 4,000 years over here. They've always been fighting with each other. How do we think we're going to solve this soon? Okay, so first of all, I think we're out of time, but here's what I'm going to suggest, George. This has such, been such fun. Can, can we get Pam to book you again in, in another uh, month or so? Sure. We can continue this conversation? Because I'd like to talk about the Middle East, um, and I have some yeah. very specific thoughts on that that I want to share with you. And I want to acknowledge, George, you were the first guy, I'm going to say probably 12 years ago, who turned me on to understanding the Middle East because you turned me on to a book called um, The Shia Revival. Right. Which, which you were the first guy to find that book, and that was the key that gave me the way to understand from that time to this what's really going on in the Middle East. And we'll share it with our listeners because the, the conflict between Shia and Sunni is what's driving the Middle East. It's a tribal conflict. It goes back to the day the prophet died, as you know. And I believe the implications. Uh, it's, isn't it amazing to see the United States in strange bedfellows with Iran? Yeah. Because Iran's the last stable force there. It's quite fascinating. I, I, I mean, there's, there's so much we could say about it. I would also like to say that I think uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, if, if Israel survives as a nation, which is in doubt to me at this point, and I say that with great sadness, if Israel survives as a nation, it will look back on the period of time when Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated as the beginning of a terrible, terrible decline, and hopefully they'll see Netanyahu as the bottom of this well. The, the Israelis have got to elect better leadership because without a two-state solution, Israel is lost from within, yep. not just from without. And, it, and it, it's a tragedy beyond belief, and you know how close I've been to Israel for my entire adult life. Uh, so I just want to end with two things. One, uh, I, I, I just want people to know that as, as much as I think that the, the front-runner for the prime ministership of India from Gujarat is an interesting guy, he does have this one spot, as you know, George. He's a, he's a fundamentalist Hindu. It is particularly difficult to see how he can't have blood on his hands from, that, from the genocidal attack on that uh, Muslim temple. That's the big thing. Yeah, you know his party is basically a Jim Crow party. They, they want to they have Hindus for India and the rest of the people can go to hell. Uh, and he has to run on that platform. And I think any time a nation, particularly you know, in the shadow of Mandela's death, that would choose to go backwards into, into Jim Crow, uh, tells me they've got to work that out or they're not going to have the economic miracle they want. At the same time, I believe the universal identification program, which they've launched in India, which people probably don't know about here in this country, is an enormous – that's going to be to them what silicon chips were to us, George. Yes. I mean, the fact that they can get a transfer payment to a poor farmer in cash without 16 people stealing it along the way, amazing. Yeah. And the corruption thing is going to be able to now be fed by the fact that people are going to be able to get money without having to pay everybody up and down the line. They're going to start saying, well, gee, why should I pay if I get it automatically in my bank account or better yet in cash? So I That's think right. there's a longer story there I'd love to chat, and I'd love to chat about China uh, as well. But I do think it, things are looking good for India. Uh, I hope they deal with this uh, Hindu nationalism issue thoughtfully. Uh, and if they do, I see just a great run for India for the next 10 years on a whole bunch of reasons, including an enormous middle class. I mean, they have more people in their middle class than we have Americans. Right. There's 338 million of us, and they got like 350 million middle class people. So, George, thanks for joining us, and please join us again. It's fun to, to be able to kick this around with you. You bet. My, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, George. Thank you. Soon. Uh, Ronaldo, that was a great conversation, and I do look forward to talking more about the Middle East because you and I talk about it all the time, and it's just so critical and interesting to the future and the near term. Um, but I would like to squeeze in a quick lightning round here. I want to sure. ask you, what, what do you see uh, in the outlook for the price of gold? Yeah, and, and we're going to have to do the REIT thing next, next time because we don't have time. Um, yeah, but gold is going to continue to lay low. It, it dropped 23, 24% in 2013. As you know, I, I routinely told people, don't buy it. It's not time. It's not time. It's going to drop lower. It did. It did. It did. It still hasn't come back, and uh, it's still premature to buy gold. I am watching it carefully because I see the possibility of inflation kicking in at the end of the first quarter. So I am watching it, but don't buy yet, and I'll give you an update on it later. Um, by the way, I also want to, because of that inflation warning I just gave, I continue to be negative on the bond market. As you know, we correctly called that one last October. Um, within days after I made the call, the bond market dropped 7%. It's going to drop further. Uh, you don't want to own bonds. You don't want to own any bond right now that's not inflation-adjusted. 
uh, with the possible exception of bonds which are highly liquid, where they're uh, undervalued. Uh, I would say up until a year ago, that would have included California general obligation bonds because they were tax-advantaged and undervalued. Uh, I still believe at this time uh, that you're better off in dividend stocks, and there was a great article just the other day on this subject showing how many really uh, solid, solid companies are paying dividends in excess of 2.5%, and many of these companies, and I'm taking Exxon out of that list, which does pay a high dividend, uh, many of these companies, frankly, are um, really um, acceptable companies you'd like to own a piece of. Excellent. How about Sorry? Sorry? you buy junk? I don't buy junk yet. Um, I, I think junk, uh, and what George means by junk is uh, high interest rate debt from co- emerging companies. I think it's probably safe to start buying junk, George, candidly. has been for about two months. Uh, only reason I'm not jumping up and down on it is I want to see at least one more month of what happens in Congress before I do my happy dance. <laughs> okay. Uh, as you know, we've, we've got a couple of key dates coming up. I don't think the Congress is going to do anything foolish, although the refusing to extend unemployment benefits is, is, a, is a small example. I'm just waiting to see how they handle the next couple of issues. Is this taking back of the Republican Party real? Is it going to last? Will Boehner get some starch? Will Harry Reid, is the Democratic leader of the Senate, will he continue to show starch? These are the questions I, I'm trying to get a little better flavor for. And what's going to happen? Did Chris Christie just implode this morning? Those are the questions that will give me some better feel about where the economy will go. But as most people know, and you're one of them, uh, you buy high interest rate so-called junk bonds in periods like this when there's recovery, and there is clearly recovery. Ronaldo, before we close, I wanted to talk quickly, or have you have you touch on the strange weather we've been seeing here in the states and in general around the globe, and its relation to climate change? Yeah, uh, first, really briefly, because I know we're running short on time. The, the the enormous disturbance which occurred in the Arctic for the last 10 days is something that should be freaking people out because it's a direct result of climate change, a direct result. So what we've said all along in all the years we've been talking about climate change is the sign of climate change is, is, and the damage it does is when you have wild fluctuations between drought and deluge, between hot and cold. So when you, when you have a destabilized system, you get destabilized phenomena. And we've always said that, that these, these are indications that climate change is getting worse and worse. Well, that polar vortex, as it was called, was, occurred because of a complete breakdown of the ability at the highest levels of our atmosphere, so at the jet stream level, a breakdown of the, the normal containment flow of the jet stream, which usually takes a dip down towards Illinois in a V-shape and then back up. And in order to keep that cold air mass up there at the Arctic where it is in the wintertime, the, 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 the jet stream has to be strong enough and, be, and, and have a predictable enough flow of air current that it can contain that, like, like, almost like a fence, to contain that huge Arctic cold, which if there is no fence, because it is in the northern hemisphere, it will come south, if nothing else because of the Coriolis effect of the, of the turning of the planet. So where we are right now is a situation where the, the, this cold, freak cold spell, and with a comedy, I might say, by enormous amounts of snowfall. Okay. All that snow is a direct result of the increased amount of moisture in the air, and that cold is a direct result of the fact that the, 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 the upper at, it's called upper atmospheric fluid dynamics. That's the exact science. And I've been a student of upper atmospheric fluid dynamics for about 20 years. And the thing you study in that is the jet stream. And what we've been saying, I and other people who are sophisticated in that research, have been saying for at least 15 or 20 years is, oh, my God, the jet stream's getting destabilized. In fact, on this program a year ago, I talked about how the dip was becoming elongated and becoming more like a rectangle. The, the, the jet stream was collapsing down as far as, as, far as Arizona, New Mexico, and then going across the country and then dipping back up on the East Coast. So it created a big rectangle. What happened this year is the jet stream lost all ability to contain that cold air, it just could not contain it, and it came down exactly in the same place you would expect if there was no barrier between the Arctic frozen north and, frankly, Atlanta. 
So, so these destabilizing effects indicate that climate change is far more advanced than people would have ever thought. And I want to end with something that I was um, – most people don't read the reports of the International Climate Panel. We do, as you know, Matt. And, 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 and I have been saying now for five, six, seven years – if we went to zero CO2 emissions tomorrow morning, it's too late. The negative environmental feedback loop has already taken hold. In the last factual statement, so in the very last factual statement of last report, the words appear that the only way to uh, deal with climate change at this point is to have a reduction of CO2 in excess of 100%. That's scientific code for we've got to figure out how to suck it back out of the air, as you know, Matt, my, prior, my preference would be to make building materials out of CO2, otherwise recarbonize it. I'm delighted mm-hmm. the Green Chemistry Association, as we mentioned earlier in the show, it can turn it into plastic economically. We need to start advancing this science rapidly because we are on deep yogurt <laughs> as a country. It's, and this year, it's frozen yogurt. <laughs> well, that wraps it up. On behalf of the World Business Academy, thank you for listening. We'll be back next month with another episode of New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. Take care. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, George.